0: Revelation 12, verse 12. So in our ongoing study of Revelation now on Sunday afternoons, as so we've been working through this chapter, we've come in chapter 12 to a very climactic point in redemptive history. Uh, the male child whom we have identified as the Lord Jesus Christ has been caught up to heaven and to his throne. And so verse 9, upon that, the great dragon, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, has been cast out. And he was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. And then upon the casting out of Satan, upon this great victory, this climactic point in redemptive history, John hears a loud voice in heaven saying, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power or the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. There's no mistaking, as you work through the text of Revelation, as we go through chapter by chapter, verse by verse, there is absolutely no mistaking the pivotal nature of this climactic point. This is a very climactic point. Uh, Not only in the book of Revelation, not only in this text, not only in this particular cycle, but in redemptive history, the promised kingdom, the kingdom that you read about in the prophets, the promised kingdom that you hear about all throughout the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, that promised kingdom of God has come. Right? The authority of his promised Christ has come. Where once our adversary stood to accuse the brethren day and night before our God, now our advocate reigns there, always living to make intercession for us. And God has given evidence of this to all by raising him from the dead. His kingdom has come. He said as much in Psalm 2. God says, I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree, the Lord has said to me. You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, God says, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Paul, in his sermon from Acts 13, verse 33, Paul says that God has fulfilled this, To us and our children, in the the sense that um, God has raised Jesus from the dead. Psalm 2 fulfilled when God raised Jesus from the dead, when Jesus Christ was then enthroned in heaven. So it's through the victory then of Jesus Christ, his death, his resurrection, his enthronement, that the saints then overcome Satan. We are granted, it has been granted to us to overcome His victory over sin and death has become our victory over sin and death. His resurrection from the dead has become our resurrection to new life. And he will raise us up at the last day, even giving us the gift of his spirit as a pledge of our inheritance. We saw last week the way in which we overcome. Satan is by the blood of the lamb through faith in him for his finished work and by the word of our testimony, loving not our own lives, even to the death. The promised and everlasting kingdom of the son is now, brothers and sisters, is now an inaugurated reality. We're not awaiting the establishment of some future kingdom. The kingdom, the everlasting kingdom, that dominion which will never pass away, that kingdom has been established in the sun. It is now an inaugurated reality. And the Lord now, during this time, during this age, is plundering the strong man's house until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and then the end will come. So Revelation chapter 12, this text in particular, points to a, a pivotal apex in redemptive history, this great victory. And it all results in a celebration in heaven. Verse 12, therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. It begins with that command to rejoice, therefore rejoice. What's the therefore, therefore, right? Because Christ is enthroned because Christ is enthroned because the kingdoms of our Lord have become the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ rejoice because Satan has been cast out rejoice because the saints have been granted power to overcome him rejoice rejoice those verse 12 literally who tabernacle in the heavens those who tabernacle in the heavens are those who have taken up their residence in heavenly places That word tabernacle used intentionally. We'll talk about that. No one can bring a charge against God's elect. It is God who justifies. Rejoice, O heavens. No one may condemn them. It is Christ who died and is furthermore risen. And now we see in Revelation chapter 12, is enthroned, reigning there, always living to make intercession for us. Rejoice. No one can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, Rejoice! There's a command here, and it's a reasonable command to rejoice. We can sometimes lose sight of those reasons for rejoicing when we're facing present difficulty. But I would submit to you, that's one of the ways in which we take joy in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our difficulties, is we keep our eyes fixed upon eternal and unseen things in the heavenlies. We keep our eyes fixed on the horizon, as it were, and rejoice. We rejoice in Him. We rejoice that the victory has been won. We rejoice that the kingdom has been established. We've just not yet quite joined the fullness of that celebration. We will soon enough in a short time, in a short time, we will. While there is cause for rejoicing among those whose habitation is on high, there is cause for sorrow, cause for misery for those who dwell upon the earth. Verse 12, woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. So there is rejoicing and there is wrath. Consider with me first, the rejoicing. Consider the rejoicing and the cause of our rejoicing, the foundation, the source, the origin, the ground of our rejoicing. Rejoicing, verse 12, is to take place in the sphere of heaven, in the realm of heaven, among those who are tabernacling there, right? The grammar of the text in verse 12 is really interesting and it's unusual. The command to rejoice is a present passive imperative, right? It's not unlike the command, the command to be filled with the spirit, right? You're commanded be filled with the spirit, right? This is a similar command. The present tense referring to the performing of an ongoing action. You're to perform this ongoing action. The passive voice referring to being the recipient of this action. So you're performing this ongoing action of receiving, right? And the imperative mood, communicates a command to do something. You're commanded to do it. So those who dwell in the heavens are being commanded to be constantly being acted upon with a celebratory joy. Be constantly acted upon with a celebratory joy. O you heavens, rejoice, right? In other words, it's God who acts on them. And God who acts upon them and fills them with joy and fuels their celebration. The receipt of this joy is passive in the sense that God is the one who grants it. We are the recipients of that joy. He is the reason for the joy of heaven. So we would say with Augustine, God command command what you will command what you will and supply what you command, rejoice. And God is the one who fills us with reason to to take joy, reason to rejoice. He's the one who fuels and motivates that joy. For those who tabernacle in heaven, God is our exceeding joy. God is our exceeding joy. Now that's what's implied by the, the use or the employment of that term, that verb for tabernacle. For those with whom God is pleased to tabernacle, he is our exceeding joy. And brothers and sisters, through Jesus Christ our Lord, he is pleased to tabernacle with you. That's the point of our redemption, our redemption, right? That's where all of this is headed. All of this is headed. Everything is headed. Everything is headed toward The tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them forever. It's heading there. The presence of God among his people, our God who is our exceeding joy. That's the same concept that's conveyed in God's tabernacling tabernacling presence with Israel in the wilderness. God made a tabernacle in the wilderness for Israel where his presence was said to dwell. He met with Moses there as a man meets with his friend and talked with Moses face to face. It was God's tabernacling presence among his people. It's the same idea conveyed in the use of the very same word. John chapter one, verse 14, where it said that Jesus Christ, the word became flesh and tabernacled or dwelt among us. The very presence of God in the midst of his people. That's the whole picture behind the temple and the temple presence of God throughout redemptive history. It all points to the promise of his presence among his people. In Revelation 21, you can turn there with me, just flip a few pages to the right. Revelation 21, John is focused on the picture of the New Jerusalem coming out of heaven as a bride adorned for her husband. And he hears a great voice from heaven saying, this is verse 3, Behold, The tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them. Do you see how that's repeated? There's an emphasis there. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away. There will be exceeding joy in his presence. He is the joy of heaven. Verse 5. And he who sat on the throne said, behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, write, for these words are true and faithful. Verse 12, back in Revelation 12, therefore rejoice, therefore rejoice. Rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. And we have a temporary tent here, but our habitation, uh, our eternal house is in the heavens, not made with hands. We long for that day but we are among those who tabernacle on high and we can rejoice in our God. Now, John, what John is doing with this is again, he's pulling concepts out of the Old Testament. He takes his New Testament pen, he dips that in the, the inkwell, if you will, of the Old Testament, and he's pulling forth Old Testament concepts, Old Testament language. Revelation is the capstone of the canon, which means that the canon is building up to and progressing toward its fullest expression, if you will, in the book of Revelation. So one of the places where Paul, John pulls from here is from Isaiah 49. Turn there with me to Isaiah 49. Isaiah 49, and Isaiah 49 is a part of what theologians refer to as the servant songs of Isaiah. And this is a song of God's anointed servant, which we know to be Jesus Christ. Often in the servant songs, you'll see Israel spoken of as the servant of God. Israel is typical of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is true Israel. And here we have an example of that. You see that uh, in the language of the song. Uh, You see that language being used. Language that applies to Israel as a nation, but is ultimately applicable to the Lord Jesus Christ as the servant uh, of God prophesied here in Isaiah. Isaiah 49, look at verse one. Listen, O coastlands, to me, and take heed, you peoples from afar, heavens and earth, the earth and the sea. Listen. Listen. The Lord has called me from the womb, from the matrix of my mother. He has made mention of my name. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he has hidden me. He has made me a polished shaft. His quiver, he has hidden me. And he said to me, you are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Jesus Christ is true Israel. Then I said, I have labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and in vain. Yet surely my just reward is with the Lord and my work with my God. And now the Lord says, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring back Jacob to him, right? To effect the salvation of his people. So that Israel, true Israel is gathered to him, for I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord and my God shall be my strength. Indeed, he says, he says, God, Yahweh says to this glorious servant, indeed, he says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. What we're entering into here is a dialogue, if you will, between Yahweh and this glorious servant whom we know to be the Lord Jesus Christ. And they're talking about the redemption, the redemption that God has promised in and through the work of the son. And it's not just a a redemption of Jacob, that one tribe of Israel, as it were, it is the nations. The nations will be given to him as his inheritance. So thus says the Lord, verse seven, the redeemer of Israel, their holy one, to him whom man despises, To him whom the nation abhors, to the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise. Princes also shall worship because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, and he has chosen you. God is going to bring about this redemption. Verse 8, thus says the Lord, In an acceptable time I have heard you. In the day of salvation, I have helped you. I will preserve you and give you as a covenant to the people to restore the earth, to cause them to inherit the desolate heritages. If you remember uh, from 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul quotes this very text, Isaiah 49, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 there, to speak of the salvation that God has accomplished through the work of the Son. This This has been fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. This work has been accomplished. This work has been completed. And Paul appeals to that in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. He goes on to say, verse 9, that you may say to the prisoners, Go forth, to those who are in darkness, show yourselves, they shall feed along the roads, their pastures shall be on all desolate heights, they shall neither hunger nor thirst. Neither heat nor sun shall strike them. For he who has mercy on them will lead them. Even by springs of water, he will guide them. I will make each of my mountains a road. My highways shall be elevated. Surely these shall come from afar. Look, those from the north and the west, these from the land of Sinim, all over the place, sing, Oh heavens, here's the language, right? Be joyful, O earth. Rejoice, O heavens, and break out in singing, O mountains, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have mercy on his afflicted. Why are they celebrating? Right? Why are they celebrating? They're celebrating because the victory has been won. Salvation has been accomplished. It has been promised here in Isaiah 49. It's been prophesied here in Isaiah 49, but because it is the word of the living God, it is as sure as certain. And so all of heaven is seen to be rejoicing over the salvation that God will accomplish through his son, the servant. You see? Why are they celebrating? Why are they rejoicing? Because God has accomplished salvation for his people. When we come to 2 Corinthians 6, why is Paul bringing it up? Because God has accomplished salvation for his people. And he's done that through the son. There has been a victory that is won. The kingdoms of our God, the power of his Christ have come, right? The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. There is a victory that has been take, that has taken place. It's the very same language that we see used throughout Revelation at the end of these cycles, when the Lord Jesus Christ returns or in Revelation 12, when he's enthroned to depict this great victory. And why does the book of Revelation continue to remind us of this language? It continues to remind us of this language to, to press us into heaven, to press us against that reality that the victory is won. That celebration is our celebration. That's, that's, these promises are our promises. It has been accomplished. We live in the age of his accomplishment. We're awaiting the age of his consummation. The very same language in, in Revelation 7. Turn there with me to Revelation 7. We see it in several places, but in particular here. I'll get there. <laughs> Revelation chapter 7. And look there, beginning at verse 9. This is uh, at the consummation of the kingdom, the consummation of the kingdom now, at the return of Christ under the cycle of the seals, if you remember. Revelation chapter seven, verse nine. After these things, I looked and behold, this is a great multitude, which no one can number of all nations, tribes, people and tongues. And he said to the Lord, it's too small a thing that you should have Jacob. Behold, I give you the nations as your inheritance. And here they are, here they are. All nations, tribes, peoples and tongues, standing before the throne, before the lamb, clothed with white robes, Palm branches in their hands. Why? Because the Lord Jesus Christ has redeemed them, and crying out with a loud voice, then saying, "Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb." What does that sound like? It sounds like the very same language we see in Revelation chapter what twelve. Salvation has come. The power of our the kingdom of God. and The power of His Christ have come. Right. Same language. Same description. Revelation is cyclical. Do you see? Revelation is cyclical. The reason that we see this language used repeatedly is because these are repeated cycles and revelation is essentially recapitulating that same period of history, our period of history. It's recycling our period of history. That period that began at the the first advent of the Lord Jesus Christ and concludes with his return and the ushering in of the eternal state, right? That period of time is being covered in the book of Revelation and we see that same language used again and again in the book because the book is constantly pressing, up, pressing us up against the end of the age and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's pressing us against heaven. Verse 14. These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell with them. Amen. He will tabernacle. It's the very same word there. The very same verb. He will tabernacle among them. That's where it's headed. That's where we're heading. God's tabernacling presence among his people. Verse 16. This should sound familiar to you from Isaiah 49. They shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat for the lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Rejoice, (laughs) rejoice. Revelation 12 is depicting the joy in heaven over the accomplishment of God's redemptive purposes. The joy of heaven is the accomplishment of God's redemptive purposes. The joy of heaven is the tabernacling presence of God among his people. While those people experience the joy of God's presence and the joy of God's accomplished salvation, right? God's tabernacling presence among his people. While those people relish the presence of God and all his work accomplished on their behalf. (laughs) Therefore, verse 12, rejoice. O heavens rejoice. You who dwell in them. Now, Again, the reason, the reason that this is repeatedly depicted in the book of Revelation to the church in her tribulation is because that joy is our joy too. That joy is our joy too. We have to constantly be reminded of that. You know, I'm, I'm if you're like me, I'm, I don't imagine that I'm alone in this, but I am sometimes confounded by my own. Weakness in continuously remembering and laying hold of that joy. (laughs) And I'm often discouraged, dismayed over earthly difficulty. Why does the Bible continue to remind us of this? Because we need continual reminding of (laughs) of this. It has been accomplished. It has been accomplished. That joy is our joy. They're not celebrating there without us while we're left on the out skirts, you know, we're stepchildren. I mean, no, that joy is our joy. We're adopted children in the household of God. We need to be reminded of it. Paul says, Second Corinthians chapter 5, for we know, we know that if our earthly tent, this house is destroyed, this tabernacle, that's the word that he uses there. If this tabernacle is destroyed, the noun form of that word, We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And we have to remind ourselves that while we're here, uh, they may kill the body, but that is all. That is all. That is all that they may do. My inheritance is there. God is my portion forever. He is my exceeding joy and the war has been won. God has Accomplished this through the work of his son. And I need to keep my heart focused upon that joy. We need to keep our eyes on heaven, right? On heaven. When we face difficulties here. And it puts difficulties here in their right perspective, right? Paul says that um, this light affliction, <laughs> and I'm just amazed by Paul, Paul using that word, Paul, the apostle Paul, we talked about his affliction this morning. Paul refers to his own affliction as light, which is but for a moment. It is light and it is momentary. It is light and it is short. We have a short time. This momentary light affliction is producing for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. We have to keep it in perspective. However, while there is joy proclaimed throughout heaven, there is misery decreed for those who dwell upon the earth. Verse 12, joy and misery. Verse 12, woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. Joy, rejoicing and wrath. There will come a day, there's this distinction in verse 12 between heaven and earth. Those who dwell in the heavens, those who dwell on the earth and in the sea, there will come a day when that distinction will be eradicated. The Lord refers, refers to that day as the regeneration. We learned about the regeneration in Romans chapter 8, where this earth, too, the entire cosmos will be redeemed from its bondage to corruption and will enjoy the liberty of the sons of God. There will come a day, the regeneration, where the entire cosmos will be recreated. The entire cosmos will be filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. When there is one realm, not two realms, one kingdom. Now, there are two realms. John speaks in verse 12 of a distinction between two realms, two peoples, two kingdoms, The kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of the son of his love. There are those who tabernacle in the heavens and there are those who dwell upon the earth. In our text, in our text, those two realms, those two kingdoms are distinguished by the presence and activity of Satan. Satan has been cast out of heaven. Those in the heavens rejoice. Satan has been cast to the earth. Woe to those who dwell on the earth. Do you see? Those two realms distinguished by the presence and activity of Satan. There will come a day when the kingdoms of this world are, there is a day now, where the kingdoms of this world are the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, where that kingdom will be consummated and Satan will be cast into hell with the devil and his angels. All authority has been given to Christ. Satan may no longer take his place before the bar of God's justice in the courtroom of heaven, So now Satan concentrates his efforts by wreaking havoc among the inhabitants of the earth. Now elsewhere, John has used the term earth dwellers to refer specifically to unbelievers. But he avoids the use of that specific term here. And the reason he avoids the use of that term is because he does not have unbelievers only in mind in this place. It's not a technical term here, earth dwellers. Not only does the activity of Satan imply misery for unbelievers, the presence and activity of Satan on earth will mean misery for believers as well. It's not called tribulation for nothing. His wrath is expressed against the people of God. The people of God in the time of his sojourn here on the earth, before he is cast into hell, His time here, his primary target is the people of God. Verse 13, when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. And we've identified that woman with the people of God. In various representations, right? The people of God in the Old Testament, the people of God in the New Testament, but that woman represents the people of God across all ages. Those are God's elect. Verse 17, the dragon was enraged with the woman and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. The dragon, Satan, that devil, that diabolos, that slanderer has a primary target and his primary target on this earth are the people of God. Now, That activity is fueled by what verse 12 describes as Satan's great wrath. His activity motivated by his great wrath, great wrath, because his position has been lost. He can no longer stand before the bar of God's judgment and condemn them or accuse them before his throne day and night. Great wrath because he has summarily been defeated. He is a defeated foe. But great wrath, particularly with respect to verse 12, because he knows he has but a short time. He has a short time, short time. A short time before what? This should be encouraging to you. (laughs) We should find encouragement in this. A short time is a reference to the near and imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has a short time before Jesus Christ comes back. It is a short time before the near and imminent consummation of the inaugurated kingdom, that everlasting kingdom. It is a short time before the near and imminent destruction of his own activity, the near and imminent and final dispensing of Satan and his demons altogether. The wrath of Satan in verse 12 indicates that Satan is aware of this very same reality because he's filled with wrath over it. He has but a short time. That short time, incidentally, refers to the very same period of time in which he persecutes the woman. It's the very same time period. That 1260 days, that time's time and half a time, 42 months, Revelation Daniel continued to refer to that time period, this age. He has that period of time. It's the same period of time in which he persecutes the woman. Now, As we've seen, that woman is representative of the people of God. We may see her in specific specific reference to Eve or to Mary. We may see her in specific reference to the nation of Israel. But more specifically, we've identified her with the people of God, Old Testament and New Testament. And upon the resurrection, ascension, and enthronement of the Lord Jesus Christ, she flees into the wilderness, into the wilderness of this world, verse 6. Verse 6. 1260 days for three and a half years for times, time, and half a time where the Lord has prepared a place for her, where he nourishes her there. And that is the same period of time that Satan pursues the woman and persecutes the woman and makes war with the rest of her offspring on the earth. Verse 14, where she is nourished for times, times, and half a time from the presence of the serpent. Okay? Okay. Again, as we've seen, that period of time, a reference to the very time, the very age in which we now live, where Satan is now prowling like a lion seeking prey. It's a period that the Bible describes as a period of great tribulation. Now, just as that short time and that imminent fact of Christ's return should motivate believers to love and good works, listen, knowing that we have a short time, work, let's work right? We work while it's day. The night is coming where no one will work. We work while it's day, right? While that short time should motivate us to love and to good works, it motivates Satan to do evil, to cause as much havoc and to cause as much misery as he can before the end comes. And much of that activity is directed against the Lord's people. That's our reality. Expect suffering. Woe. Uai, (laughs) to those who dwell upon the earth, Satan has come down to you having great wrath because he knows he has but a short time. We should expect woe. That Greek word for woe is that word uai. It's an onomatopoeia. It means that the word sounds like it actually is. The word hiss sounds like what it is. It's an onomatopoeia. Uai is an onomatopoeia. It sounds like what it is. So here, ooh, I, sounds like the misery that it represents. Certainly, you've said before, like when you see something that's startling and bad, you're like, ooh. Well, you're just one step short of ooh, I. It's the same concept, ooh, I, ooh, I. Misery, whoa. We shouldn't be surprised by this. I think that's one of the deceits of Satan is to... To deceive people have got into being surprised over those things. Uh, we should be expecting it, not surprised, not astonished or shocked when these various trials come upon us. That word "Ui" used of the last three trumpets in the cycle of trumpets, uh, in reference to the intensity of their misery, and that misery in those under those three trumpets de- declared for those who dwell upon the earth. That. Is a reference there that "oI, that woe, is a reference there to God's judgment upon earth dwellers, unbelieving earth dwellers. Okay, this o is rever- is referring to those or declare to those, proclaim that this is going to be the case for those who dwell upon the earth, and that is because of the activity of Satan, whose main target is the people of God. It's a word that refers to the misery here in, verse, in Revelation twelve caused by Satan and that that uai is characteristic of the tribulation that even the saints experience during these last days for those who believe somehow that we're going to be exempt from uai they're missing the point of revelation and they're doing themselves and the people they preach to a disservice because we're not being properly prepared to face uai when it comes we face tribulation in this age. We're going to have suffering and difficulty, adversity and woe, and that is by the presence and activity of Satan. It is with much UI that we must enter the kingdom of heaven. And we need to take encouragement in the face of UI. We need to take encouragement because the celebration has begun. And we are among those whose tabernacle is in the heavens. We need to take encouragement in the face of that misery, in the face of that woe. We also need to take encouragement in the face of that misery, in the face of that woe, because it is but for a short time. It is but for a short time. And we need to take encouragement in the face of that woe and that misery, because it has been granted to us, Philippians chapter 1, not only to believe in him, but as a gift of God's grace, it has been granted to us to suffer for his sake. For his sake. For his sake. We have the blessing the privilege during this time only to suffer for the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not going to suffer for him, for his sake in heavens. He'll wipe away every tear from our eye. There'll be no more heat to strike us, right? No more enemies, no more prowling devils. None of that. While we are here, we have this one blessed opportunity to love him in that way, to suffer for his sake. We should take encouragement by the fact that Ui is coming our way. Not to be surprised by it or astonished by it, but to be encouraged by the fact that with the apostles, for example, in Acts chapter five, we have been counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. We should take encouragement from that. They took encouragement from that. They went out from that beating, saying, saying, we were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. We should come out of our oo saying the same thing. Amen. And not be terrified in any way by our adversaries. To them, so that faith is a proof of their perdition, but to us, it's a proof of our salvation and that from God. It's a promise from scripture. There's reason, brothers and sisters, for us to rejoice. Many reasons for us to rejoice. We need to stay focused on the celebration of heaven. That celebration, that rejoicing, that rejoicing that began at the enthronement of the Lord Jesus Christ, still going on, still going on. It's going on here too. <laughs> That's our, celebra- our celebration too. We're just not able to go quite yet, right? We're not, but we're gonna be there soon enough in a short time. We have to work while it is day. The night is coming where no one can work. For now, for now, we're called to be overcomers. We, we overcome like we discussed last week, we overcome by the blood of the lamb, by faith in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has won that victory for us. We overcome by embracing that victory in faith, knowing that it is ours through him. And we overcome by the word of our testimony. And do not love your life, even to the point of death. Cling to him in faith, cling to the testimony of our Lord Jesus Christ as a worshiping Witness, endure as a worshiping witness and do not love your life even to the point of death. We have but a short time to endure and this momentary light affliction is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Amen. Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, for the right perspective. Thank you for training our sight, as it were, for training our eyes of faith, for filling our eyes of faith with glorious reason to rejoice, even in the face of present UI. Uh, we're grateful to you, Lord, for the, the condescending grace and mercy that you show to us sinful and undeserving people in saving us from our sin in uniting us to your son and conforming us into his image and causing us with him to inherit all things and to join that celebration that will last into eternity. We praise you and thank you for that blessed inheritance wherein we will revel in, exult in your presence among us forever. As we revel in and rejoice in, celebrating the the work that you've accomplished on our behalf, as we praise and we worship Our God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we praise you and thank you, Lord, for this blessed promise. And we trust you and we believe you. We cling to Jesus Christ in faith. We vow or we commit ourselves to enduring as a faithful, worshiping witness for the Lord Jesus Christ during this dispensation, during this time of our sojourn. And, Lord, we love not our own lives, even to the death. Help us, Lord. We would be doomed if our preservation were left up to us. We rejoice that it is not left up to us, that you are the one who preserves us. We lean on you, rest in you, trust in you, and thank you, for Lord. Preserve us, we pray, in the glory of your own name, for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Bride of the church. We pray all these things, name.